I think it really is important to figure out whether you are the right person in the right seat and who you are and what your strengths are. Keep your strengths going. Address your weaknesses. Don't be afraid to try and figure those out. And don't be afraid to try and get help. everybody. This is Mike Payton with the EOS Leader Podcast. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dan Shore, founder and CEO of the Cotswolds Distillery. A native New Yorker, Dan had been working in finance in London for many years before buying a home in the Cotswolds to find some peace and spend more time with his family. Noticing his home was surrounded by barley fields, but Finding no distilleries in the area, Dan realized he could combine his love of whiskey with a longtime desire to start his own business. He promptly located a derelict site near his house, built a distillery and a team to run it, and opened the doors of Cotswold's Distillery in July 2014. He's recently published a book about his whiskey journey, Spirit Guide in Search of an Authentic Life, and I'd urge you all to get a copy and learn more about his story yourself. Welcome to the show, Dan. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. My great pleasure. Uh, before we get into your entrepreneurial journey, I'm actually curious to explore the time you spent in high finance in cities around the world. Tell us about that journey and what led you to seek a different life. Sure. Well, I don't think I ever kind of grew up imagining myself um, in, in sort of high finance or on Wall Street, although, you know, growing up in New York, Wall Street always was a very present thing. And I you know, had a couple of summer jobs working at brokerage firms and things that was kind of, it seemed as though it was a viable alternative, but coming out of college with a bachelor's degree in international relations, I didn't really know what to do. I knew that I liked things international and I was interning at a bank in Boston. I was going to Tufts up there and it was my senior year. While I was there, a job came up in their foreign exchange trading area and uh, I interviewed, I got the job, and I didn't have another job, and those were the days when you took the job you had, and right out of school, two-week holiday, and right into work. And what I thought foreign exchange would be good for with my sort of international bent was that you were really looking at different countries rather than select companies and stocks, et cetera. So there was a lot of sort of macroeconomics and uh, markets were kind of really driving things, starting to drive things back in the 80s. And the 80s was a time when if you didn't know what you, you were going to do, you kind of went to Wall Street. It was really a popular option with young, young people back then. And I didn't know it would turn into a lifetime career. And that's perhaps not really what I wanted, but I, I it just got to be where I couldn't get off the wheels. Or, yeah. For sure. And I know that feeling quite well. And then what was, walk us through the series of events that had you thinking about maybe doing something a little different. Sure. Well, I think my first kind of dissatisfaction with what I was doing in, in finance came about about sort of four or five years after I got around 1990, 1991. And it was actually, believe it or not, it was a near death experience drowning mm -hmm. in a river in Costa Rica, or almost drowning a river in Costa Rica on a whitewater rafting trip, which was kind of one of these sort of moments which make you think about what's important in your life. And I said, you know, I, I just don't want to keep on doing what I'm doing. And I was going to go 
back and get an MBA and kind of pivot and think about, you know, which way to head. But I thought just for the heck of it, I would think about something I could do within the context of my company, which would make it more fun and, and do something, make it about something I'd always wanted to do. One of those things was living abroad. And I was always a bit of a Francophile. So Paris seemed like a, a place that I'd always wanted to be. And I, I pitched the idea of this uh, small startup foreign exchange consulting company, which had a lot of clients in Europe, but no permanent marketing presence there. They should have a marketing office, and by Jove, they should put it in Paris. And somehow, they bought it. <laughs> they, they, and then I was stuck. So that was 11 years in Paris. And, um, wow. and that was fun, but it was mainly fun because I got to live in Paris. When my wife and I moved to Paris, we did what American expats sort of typically do in non-work time. We took the car and went off to the wine country, wine-producing areas, Loire Valley and Champagne and mm. Burgundy and came back with uh, the trunk full of booze and, uh, and and just these great stories about people and the provenance and, and the care that they put into and the love of making what they made. And that was great. And then all of a sudden, in 2000, I discovered something that I would say even put the French to shame in terms of provenance and terroir, and that's single malt whiskey. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that the Scots really figured out in a way that the French, with their spirit, which is uh, you know, brandy and cognac and whatever, never quite were able to sort of imbue it with the same kind of romance and provenance. And I was I was hooked. So I spent the next few years learning a lot about single malt. And in uh, my one boy's trip a year, I was kind of allowed. I'm um, going off to Scotland <laughs> and uh, doing a bit of distillery touring, which involved a bit of drinking and driving, which you can't do anymore in Scotland. But um, right. Was, it was a wonderful chance to explore a beautiful part of the world and hear the stories. And as somebody who basically sold financial derivatives for 30 years, I think I had manufacturing envy. I kind of really, <laughs> I was fascinated by people who actually made things as opposed yeah. to, you know, I made PowerPoint presentations. That's about it. So engineers and chemists and, and particularly products, you know, that, that you like that are interesting and enjoyable. So uh, that's where the romance started. Uh, that's a great story. Thanks for walking us through it. Tell us a little bit more about the business. When, when did you start it? What was the drive there? How many people? Any plans for the future? Just give us a little walk through where your head is right now. Sure. Well, the business started, I mean, the original epiphany you mentioned, the, the barley epiphany, kind of looking out at a field of barley outside of our, our country house here in the Cotswolds and saying, you know, all this barley, why isn't anyone ever made any whiskey, um, came in 2012. Uh, and uh, I set about trying to learn how to build a distillery and make whiskey, uh, none of which I kind of had any knowledge of. But I found a pair of Scottish guys who between them had 100 years or more experience in whiskey, one on the engineering side and one on the chemistry side. And they helped me sort of figure out what kit we needed, spec it all out, get it installed. Meanwhile, I hired a small team, most of whom had as little experience as I did. I tried to find a sort of a grizzled old Scott to be our head distiller, but no one actually wanted to come south of the border and work for a, a risky startup. So I found a couple of young, bright guys uh, who were passionate about it. And we started distilling in the summer of 2014. And now we find ourselves six and a half years later with a staff of 50, three retail shops, uh, wholesale sales out into about 40 countries and selling about a quarter million bottles a year of uh, whiskey and gin and other spirits. And I presume the United States is one of the countries where I might be able to acquire your product? In a couple of states. The uh, U.S. is a very tough place yeah. for liquor because it's not one country, it's actually 50 countries in every right. state 
has its own regulations, its own tax system. And then there's this three-tier system, which means that uh, as a producer, you can't sell straight to a consumer or even to a retailer. You have to go through a distributor. And mm. typically, distributors really like to hear from you if you're a big guy and you're you know you're selling and he's selling enough of your spirits to pay his mortgage but if you're a startup and a little guy it's really tough whereas over here we can sell straight to a consumer we can sell straight to a shop people can buy booze on amazon so um uh, that's starting to happen in the states but it's slower and um you know it's definitely the biggest prize out there but it's the one that needs the most investment and yeah. the most time but we are in about six or seven states across nice. the u.s yeah. Go to winesearcher.com and stick, stick in Cotswolds. You'll, you'll find a whole bunch mm-hmm. of stories. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you've made me thirsty already, so I plan to do that immediately after hanging up with you, Dan. So let's yeah. uh, let's pivot and talk about leadership. And, and I think you've seen a spectrum of leadership styles in your life, and I'm interested in you know picking at that for a while and learning from you. The first question I have for you is, when was the first recollection you have of seeing someone lead who was it what made you recognize it as leadership and and what did you take from that experience well i think probably it would be with the company that i ultimately ended up spending 26 years with when i started off with them i was only 25 i had been working at a couple of big banks but i never saw those as being places for me long-term. I was not a sort of a corporate guy, and I ended up going to work for a startup well before I expected to do that. And it was led by a very charismatic guy, brilliant guy, very entrepreneurial. And I, I think I've taken the bits that I want to try and recreate from from that and hopefully substituted where I think there were problems, um, other approaches. Yeah. Tell us about the best parts of his leadership style. And then obviously I'm going to ask you a follow-up question when you're done with that. Sure. Well, EOS kind of taught me that uh, when you look at sort of accountability and how an organization works, that in most startups, there's a visionary, somebody who's responsible for the big picture, the direction, very often linked to sort of new product development. And, you know, it was really the voice and the spirit behind the business. And that wasn't hard to recognize myself in because that that's who I am, who I was. But EOS also says that there's an integrator behind every good visionary, and somebody once called it a picker-upper, um, but somebody <laughs> who basically can integrate different groups, different departments, whatever, and that's something I have very little skill at. I never had it, so therefore, I guess I always tried to avoid it. One of the ways of doing that initially was going off and putting in, you know, moving to Paris and putting an ocean between me and a head office, and then I ended up on the management committee, but I was always a quiet guy who never really wanted to get involved, and so... That was then, and then, you know, it was fine being a visionary without sort of a, without much integration behind me in the beginning, because I sort of was trying to manage everything. I had my arms kind of around every aspect of the mm-hmm. business. But as the business grew, I realized I, I couldn't continue, you know, my arms weren't long enough to mm-hmm. stay around all aspects of the business. And um, my own lack of ability as, as an integrator, well, you know, unfortunately, there wasn't anybody else to be CEO but me right so i needed help and i needed a system and that's really where where the introduction to eos came in interesting you know in all your journeys what's the scariest or most difficult leadership moment you've had to navigate through tell us about it what was the decision you needed to make and and how did it work out probably it was as we started growing we started growing uh, in an area that i never expected would be big for us which was gin 
you know, I, I was whiskey geek and I always wanted to make single malt whiskey where it had never been made in the Cotswolds using local barley. But I always said, you know, distilling is fun and there's lots of things you can distill. And, you know, we've done everything from apple brandy to rum to grappa. And, uh, mm. you know, but at some point you do have to focus. Gin is obviously a very popular spirit here in the UK. We didn't invent it, actually came from the Netherlands, but we certainly made it known in the world. And there's been a huge gin renaissance going on here in the UK in the last couple of years. And we, you know, the great thing about gin is you don't have to wait three years until it's been aged in oak casks. Mm -hmm. So you can make it on a Tuesday and sell it on a Wednesday. And so for a small business with cash flow issues and CapEx issues, that was great. And we always just thought it would be nice to have something out on the shop shelves while we're waiting on our whiskey. But then our gin went viral and it just kind of took off, started winning awards and it started growing and growing to the point where we were having to kind of build our brand around a product that we didn't think was going to show up for a couple of years. And we were having to hire sales guys and marketing people. And at the same time, we were running out of production capacity. Hmm. So at that point, um, the difficult decision that I faced was, do we double down? And by double down, I mean, this was no longer a little neighborhood craft business. This was, you know, are we going to try and become a national and eventually international brand? And that's going to involve more money. It's going to involve more people. It's going to involve more risk a better structure, really, and was I ready uh, to, to take this on? And were you? I did. I drank the Kool-Aid. Um, <laughs> I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it had it not been for my kind of largest angel investor, who has become since a great friend, and I would say almost partner in, in all but, but, but equity stake. And uh, it, it's somebody who's a, a gentleman, he's an Australian gentleman who's kind of um, retired to the Cotswolds, early retirement, but after a, a very successful career in investment banking, and really reminded me of that first guy, the first leader I was just mentioning, the yeah. really kind of laser-like precision and, and ability to really look at things, take them apart. So if I hadn't had him, I don't think that I would have um, had the guts. I sometimes joke that it's kind of like, you know, if you're by yourself and you're a little kid, and your mom wants you go out to play, you know, you don't get in that much trouble. But if there's two of you, you get in a lot more trouble. Yeah. So Paul and I together, <laughs> you know, we've, we've definitely been willing to take on a lot more than I would have done by myself. And has your integrator learned to minimize the number of hours you two spend together? Or is that a technique that needs to be developed yet? Well, unfortunately, I spent 24-7 with my integrator because it's still me. Um, oh, got it. And, got it. No, and I, I, I still remain. I am founder CEO, and we have actually put that down as one of the long-term issues. That, got it. You know, and so there's a complete transparency. I'm very open with that to everybody, including our our facilitator from EOS and the rest of the management team that ultimately there will be better CEOs than me. There will be better integrators than me. Yeah. We just haven't had sort of the time, the money and the sort of contact flow to find the right person. So that's where EOS became so important was that through this system, I, I could be a better integrator. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. It does create some guardrails for follow through and some some visible accountability moments where if you're sitting in the integrator role and you're truly a visionary at heart, you're not failing to follow through in a vacuum, if that makes sense. So good to hear. One of my longtime friends once asked me, is it okay if we have three visionaries on our accountability chart? And the answer to that, of course, is no. And so you and Paul strike me as a couple of visionaries. And when you do hire an integrator, some sort of counseling would be helpful. 
I just uh... yeah yeah no, I, I think that there are a couple of people who are happy that Paul has been able because of the management team that we now have mm-hmm. and because of the system of organization that we now have in EOS to not be involved on an executive level. He, right. He's been able to be the non-exec director, member right. of the board, perhaps a bit more active than the others. But there's there's a couple of people that are happy for that. And definitely one of them is Paul's wife. Yeah, <laughs> fair he enough. Never, he never signed up for this. Fair so enough. he's not really so much the visionary as kind of my go-to guy. So, if sounding I board, is that? Sounding yeah. board. Yeah, that's great. That's a great role and, and vital to everybody. So let's let's talk about your opinions about leadership and your experiences. If you if I were to ask you to describe the characteristics of effective leaders in your life or the kinds of things you emulate as a leader, what are the phrases or adjectives that would come to mind? Well, for me, it's as a matter of fact, actually, um, in our vision and values that we've come up with uh, as part of our sort of whole VT, VTO are two words that probably aren't going to be familiar uh, or seen on most vision and values charts, which is big wheels. Mm. Big wheels comes from an expression that uh, Nick Franchino, who's our um, head of production um, and our head distiller, came up with. Nick is a big lover of American music and, uh, in fact, our, our whiskey stills, the tradition being to name them after women, were named after women of music. So our wash still, which is what boils up all the beer, is called Mary, and that's for Proud Mary. Mary um, yeah. Nick always will say the Creedence version, not Tina Turner. Um, <laughs> and, and that's because, basically... She keeps on burning all day long. She's just burning through that beer and making it up into spirit. And so whenever the job got to be tougher than anybody could reasonably expect, Nick would just utter two words to them, which was just big wheels, Mm. meaning, you know, we can do it. We can get together. Nick's a rugby player and he's a real believer in teamwork. And grit is another English word that, uh, or graft, I think, a grafter, you know, being a grafter. Mm. And so we felt that that described everyone in the company, really, uh, in their departments that that really was working well and, and had become a, a disassociable part of the company. And it's their big wheels. Yeah. And being able to do way more than the job description ever had asked you for that you could imagine yourself capable of doing. Wow, that's love both of those characteristics. And then the flip side, is there anything that that you've seen other people leading that turned you off or things that you work really hard to avoid doing yourself as a leader because you know how destructive or demotivational they can be? Yeah, I've, I've seen sometimes sort of pompous and imperious kind of leadership, which really is a turnoff. Uh, I mean, I, I only know how to be one way, which is who I am, which is sometimes painfully, boringly transparent and wanting to make myself understood. Um, sometimes I have a tough time with a bit of posturing that maybe you do need to do because it's just not in my nature. So it's really about leading by example. And folks who don't do that, I suppose, are not folks who I would ever want to have much to do with really mm-hmm. in my own company. Excellent. Excellent. What's the biggest challenge the business is facing as you contemplate the future? Well, I mean, the traditional challenges to us are when you're building a brand, an FMCG, a fast moving consumer goods kind of a brand, you're starting from nowhere. No one knows you. Um, How do you get known? How do you achieve that kind of momentum? 
we've not found any other way than taking the expression from American football, a couple of yards in a cloud of dust. It's mm -hmm. just driving the ball down the field. And it's a combination of push and pull, the push being selling and the pull being marketing, because it's one thing to get a store to stock your product, but if nobody's buying it, then you're never going to get a second order. So those are all, you know, definitely big challenges. You know, whiskey making is by its nature quite challenging because you're looking at 10, 20, 30 year business plans because you have to be thinking with the age required in stock of what you think you're gonna need 10 or 20 years ago mm -hmm. uh, uh, from now. That's the long-term nature of it and the capital intenseness of it is definitely a, a challenge. Yeah, that feels a little bit like a blessing and a curse in that I see a lot of uh, younger companies and younger leaders getting caught in the day-to-day -day and not able to consistently be thinking long-term. And so I think long-term thinking tends to make more sustainable decisions more accessible. Have you found that, that the pressure to think long-term helps everybody on your team get better at that? I am not somebody who really was a big believer, given my age and whatever, in the merits of working from home. It just didn't, it's not <laughs> something I kind of grew up with. I never, yeah. was that expression, shirking from home. I mean, I, I just, it didn't sit comfortably with me. And yet, obviously, we've all been forced to, particularly here in the UK, mm -hmm. do that. And I've been surprised at the effect, at not only my own effectiveness, but the effectiveness of the whole management team, all of whom are working, rem well, save our head of production who has to be on site, but um, even he will go off quite a bit. And we've all become good home workers. And I think there's something about that that actually does allow you to distance yourself and think strategically. Mm. Uh, it's almost running a business like playing a video game. Sometimes, you know, it, it's good to get back and actually see what's happening mm -hmm. and people working. But I think having a little bit of that distance, that perspective, you know, definitely does help. And uh, I'd like to do more. I mean, I, I, I'm, that's my favorite part of the business is, is the the strategic, the long-term, the, the visionary piece. Yeah, great stuff. Given all your experiences around the globe, have you noticed any significant differences or interesting or intriguing similarities between leadership styles in the U.S. versus France versus the U.K., Costa Rica, where all the places you've been, are there any characteristics that are timeless and then some that are provincial or, or regional? Well, I've certainly, you know, I guess the time, the place I spent the most time uh, outside of the UK and the US has been France, where there traditionally is a little bit more formality and leadership mm -hmm. and a little bit more process. It's very process oriented. Mm -hmm. And I think the Anglo-Saxon sort of belief, as, as the French would call us Americans or Brits, of kind of cut through that and getting to the core of things isn't maybe necessarily in the French sort of spirit of things. Mm -hmm. So I, I found it very easy to adapt here in the UK because there is a lot of similarity between the, you know, the UK and US management styles. Oh, that's awesome. Here's the last question. There are a lot of young leaders working hard to be their best every day that listen to this podcast and you've covered some distance in your career. And I'd love you to think of one piece of sage advice you can give a young aspiring leader. What should they focus on to be their best? Well, this is not a plug in any way, sort of for EOS, but certainly what I've gotten out of the embracing of this system over the past nearly year now has been sort of addressing an area that was always a challenge for me, which is I think it really is important to figure out whether you are 
the right person in the right seat and who you are and what your strengths are. Keep your strengths going. Address your weaknesses. Don't be afraid to try and figure those out. And don't be afraid to try and get help. Every time I've gone out and done you know, little courses, having opportunities to network with other folks or reading a, you know, a recommended book, and that's exactly how I came to EOS, it's just it's paid back hugely for me. Uh, thank you very much. It's been great talking with you. you. Can you tell the listener where to go to learn more about your company and you, Dan? Sure. Well, if you just Google Cotswolds Distillery, you'll see a lot of pieces about us and you'll see a link to our website. You can try our, our products and we even have a U.S. store as well. And um, my book about my crazy hedge funds to hedgerows career is on Amazon. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much. I hope the listener enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you did, I'd urge you to go to iTunes, lodge a review. If you didn't, wait until the next episode. That's my pledge. And uh, But please join me in thanking Dan for his time. And may we all work hard to become our best leader every day. If you're interested in applying what you've learned today in your own business, the five books in the Traction Library can be helpful resources on your journey. You can learn more about those five books and actually order them at a deep discount by visiting eosworldwide.com.